Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary of Dialogue. This section examines the church's current position on homosexuality solely on the basis of moral reasoning, setting aside the question of whether that position is true doctrine or God's will. In other words, if an honest moral person were not convinced that the church's position was of God, using her own God-given intellect and ability to reason, what kind of reasoning might she use to determine whether same-sex marriage is moral or immoral, setting aside all religious implications for the time being? Love versus Sex in my experience, I have found that those who see same-sex relationships as sinful and immoral are focused only on the sexual aspect. They are generally unfamiliar with gay people and therefore can't even conceive of a gay person being in a loving relationship similar to that of a loving heterosexual couple. To them, being gay is only about sex. The result is that they see gay people primarily as sex objects instead of whole human beings and they see their relationships as based only on lust and unnatural sexual desire, and not on love, kindness, and mutual respect. This view is a twisted and unfair basis on which to make a moral judgment. What if the same perspective were used to view young straight couples, newly married and deeply in love? In viewing their relationships, would it be proper to think only about their private sex lives, or to visualize the kinds of sex acts they performed in the privacy of their bedrooms? Would it be proper to assume that their young love was based solely on uncontrollable lust for each other, and that the only reason they got married was to satisfy their untamable sexual desire? Such a perspective is clearly unfair and would result in a perverse view of any couple's relationship, whether gay or straight. Yet this seems to be the perspective that many people use to judge gay people's relationships, which results in a faulty moral judgment. I find it interesting that when certain church members first learn of someone they know coming out as gay, they often want to know if, or be assured that, the gay person is still celibate and what their intention is in that regard. This is such an intimate and personal question, one they would likely never ask their straight acquaintances, but for some reason they feel compelled or entitled to delve into that aspect of a gay person's life. It is as though gay people are safe and acceptable only as long as they are celibate or essentially asexual. Otherwise, their very existence offends the sensibilities and minds of some straight people who are now forced to think about gay sex. This is another example of how some straight people tend to objectify gay people. In judging the morality of a gay couple's relationship, we should use the same perspective we use to view a straight couple's relationship. We should view them as whole human beings who have an innate desire for emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and physical attachment with another human being, as most humans do. We might observe such a couple to be in love in the same way any straight couple is. We might observe whether that love manifests itself in mutual affection, kindness, respect, compatibility, complementarity, commitment, and stability, as well as physical attraction. If we generally observe these characteristics in their relationship, perhaps we may then conclude that there is no reason that their relationship is any less edifying, beneficial, and moral than that of a similarly situated straight couple. If so, we might conclude that a relationship between any two consenting adults who have the mental and emotional capacity to form a union based on love and mutual respect can thus be a moral relationship, regardless of their sexual orientation. Instinct versus Reason Human judgment about what is moral or immoral is often not based on logic or reason, but is simply a matter of gut instinct. Sexuality is one area that arouses strong positive or negative feelings in people. 
Heterosexuals may feel revulsion or discomfort at the thought of same-sex intimacy and may interpret those feelings as the spirit recoiling at something unnatural and immoral. However, this interpretation fails to consider that homosexuals may have the same feelings about opposite-sex intimacy. Whatever the feeling, are such gut instincts always to be trusted? Would it be proper, for instance, to judge interracial marriage as immoral just because you personally feel internal discomfort at the thought of intimacy with someone of another race? Such feelings may have been at the root of early church doctrines and civil laws that declared interracial marriage a sin against nature and denied black people the priesthood and temple blessings. Today, of course, the church disavows that mixed-race marriage is a sin. Or what about the gut instincts we had as children? Think back to when you first learned how babies were made. If you were told the details while in your prepubescent childhood, perhaps on the playground at school or from an older sibling, you may have been shocked and disgusted at the thought and denied that such a thing could be proper or true. Certainly your parents would never do such a thing. Those were my thoughts when friends at school first told me. Because of those feelings of disgust were so strong and the idea of sexual intercourse seemed so contrary to everything I had been taught, I could not believe in my childish mind that human sexuality could ever be acceptable or true. But with sexual maturation and development, what once seemed bizarre and disgusting all of a sudden felt instinctively natural, desirable, and of course, morally acceptable as long as it was within marriage. Like the child who is developmentally incapable of comprehending adult human sexual intimacy, a heterosexual person may be incapable of fully comprehending same-sex intimacy. So if it is nonsensical to interpret childhood feelings about sexual intimacy as evidence of immorality, shouldn't it also be nonsensical to interpret a heterosexual's feelings about same-sex intimacy as evidence of immorality? Does it make sense that the heterosexual majority gets to decide the morality of a sexual relationship for the homosexual minority? Isn't that a bit like right-handed people requiring that everyone use only their right hand for eating, writing, and playing sports because that's what feels right and natural to them, while using their left hand feels entirely wrong and unnatural? If heterosexuals get to judge the morality of romantic relationships based on what feels right and natural to them, shouldn't gay people then be able to use that same basis to judge their relationships? Some might protest that this line of reasoning is essentially, if it feels good, do it. But that is faulty logic. This reasoning simply says that gay people should be able to judge the rightness and morality of their relationships the same way heterosexuals do, based on their own gut instinct, but still within certain moral bounds. That basis does not give an automatic moral pass to do whatever they want with whomever they want. The same rules regarding consent, age, emotional and mental capacity, and mutual respect still apply. But the rules should apply equally whether gay or straight. Therefore, if someone wants to rely on their gut instinct as an indicator of morality, let them judge that morality for themselves and not for others whose gut instincts may differ. Natural or Unnatural One argument against same-sex relationships is that they are unnatural because they go against nature's intended purpose for the sexes. However, whether something is natural or not is not necessarily a good indicator of morality. Think of the many medical advances, such as artificial joints, artificial hearts, and in vitro fertilization, that are unnatural but are not considered immoral, at least not by most people. Using one's left hand or being left-handed was once viewed as unnatural, but is not considered immoral, although that was not always the case. The Latin word for left is sinister. As a missionary in the Missionary Training Center, I remember watching a short documentary about a woman who was born without arms, but who had mastered the ability to use her feet to prepare her family's meals, do her kids' hair, 
bottle feed her baby, put on her makeup, drive a car, and in short, do just about anything a mother with arms could do. She was doing things with her feet that at first glance appeared unnatural and even somewhat off-putting. Using her feet to peel and cut apples or to crush her baby's face was not what nature had intended for those body parts. But by the end of the film, I saw her as an inspiration and felt convicted for my initial feelings of discomfort. Certainly no one could say that the unnatural way in which she used her feet was immoral. Is it possible to countenance gay sexuality in the same light? Setting aside whether unnatural equates to immoral, let's simply consider the question of whether homosexuality is natural or unnatural. Those who view homosexuality as unnatural would probably cite two main reasons. First, it cannot produce offspring, which is nature's objective for sexual relations. And two, gay sex itself is inherently unnatural. Sexual reproduction evolved as a very effective means of ensuring propagation of the species. So yes, sex for the purpose of having offspring is natural. However, the vast majority of human sexual activity, including within healthy, stable marriages, is not for the purpose of reproduction, but solely to express love and desire. Does that make such sexual activity unnatural? As discussed above with respect to the church's procreation argument, a relationship built on love does not require that sexual relations be for the sole purpose of reproducing. If the outcomes of a committed, loving, same-sex relationship are just as positive and edifying as those of a heterosexual relationship, the ability to have children shouldn't determine the naturalness of those relationships, whether gay or straight. In addition, there are a number of genetic and evolutionary theories that explain how homosexuality is an advantage in human societies and actually strengthens wider family units and therefore continues to exist in a minority of the population. Based on these evolutionary advantages, homosexuality can be considered natural. Whether gay sex is seen as natural comes down to very personal and subjective opinion that mostly hinges on one's own sexual orientation, as discussed above in the section on gut instinct. To a straight person, the thought of same-sex intimacy feels unnatural, whereas to a gay person, heterosexual intimacy feels unnatural. In addition, Heterosexual couples may engage in the same type of sexual activity that gay couples do, but there are no bedroom police to tell them what they can or can't do, or what is moral or immoral. At one time not long ago, the church used to weigh in on that, at that aspect of a couple's sexual relations as it pertained to temple worthiness, but soon thereafter left it alone. Like the very personal and intimate decisions on birth control and family size, the church has left this area to married couples to decide on their own. Finally, the church's prescription for gay people, celibacy, is clearly not natural. Having to forego human intimacy, physical affection and touch, romantic love, and lifelong companionship goes against human nature. To deny someone such fundamental human experience based on highly subjective personal beliefs and opinions could itself be considered immoral, especially considering all the associated negative outcomes. Harm or Benefit one way to judge the morality of something is if it causes harm. Does a committed monogamous same-sex relationship cause harm? As discussed in the doctrinal section above, the Church has stated its belief that same-sex marriage harms society and families because, quote, children and youth will find it increasingly difficult to develop their natural identities as men or women, and some will find it more difficult to engage in wholesome courtships and form stable marriages, close quote. There is simply no basis or evidence for this claim. It appears to be based on the outdated contagion belief that people, especially youth, 
and children are recruited to be gay or that their innate sexual orientation is susceptible to change due to external influences or traumatic events in their lives. For those who still think this way, they simply need to get to know gay people and learn of their life experience. Just as harmful racist notions about other races based on nothing more than oft-repeated stereotypes and internal prejudices were dispelled by actually coming to know people of different races, so too can harmful and erroneous notions about gay people be dispelled by getting to know them. Once these erroneous notions are dispelled, it may be possible to see same-sex marriage as a benefit to society. Traditionally, society has valued the institution of marriage based on the belief that it causes young single people who may be prone to more profligate, reckless living that can endanger the physical and emotional health of themselves and others to settle down, become responsible, and think about others above themselves. If marriage really accomplishes this, why wouldn't we want it for gay people as well as straight people? Would we rather keep gay people on the margins of acceptable society, where hookup culture and risky behavior abound? Or would we prefer that they have the same opportunity and expectations as straight people to enter into committed marriage relationships? If you were a parent whose gay child did not feel called to be celibate, what path would you prefer they take? Should the answer matter whether your child is gay or straight? The great majority of LDS parents of gay children that I know want their gay children to have stable, committed relationships that will result in a greater likelihood of physical and emotional health and well-being just as they do for their straight children. And those kinds of relationships are more likely to come from legal marriage. As LDS parents, we have taught our children from their earliest years the importance of finding a worthy husband or wife who will love and cherish them, and that the greatest joys in life come from a fulfilling marriage and family life. So should it come as any surprise that our gay children, who have internalized those teachings and seen the good examples of their parents, desire what we have? Is denying them that ideal because they are gay in their best interest or in society's best interest? If they prefer to be in a committed marriage relationship instead of just living together, isn't that a good thing? Moral Basis Conclusion Again, setting aside all religious implications for the moment, if we accept the two basic premises previously introduced that 1. being gay is not a choice and 2. Gay people have the same capacity as straight people to enter into committed, loving relationships. We must ask ourselves how a love-based, committed, same-sex relationship is any different or less moral than a love-based, committed, heterosexual relationship. To go a step further, we should be willing to ask ourselves whether it is moral to deny gay people the right and opportunity to experience what almost every human being desires in terms of romantic love, physical and emotional connection, and lifelong companionship with someone they are naturally attracted to. For those of us who are fully heterosexual, we should be willing to put ourselves in the shoes of our gay brothers and sisters and try to see it from their perspective. If you are a happily married man, imagine how you would feel if the majority of society told you that your relationship with your beloved wife, which you held most dear and treasured above all other earthly possessions, was depraved, unnatural, and sinful. Or if a happily married woman that the love you had for your husband was not real, but a counterfeit version that could only lead to despair and unhappiness. That the only way to be moral and acceptable to decent society is to leave your beloved companion and to forever shut down all desire for human intimacy and romantic love. Would you do it? Would you just accept what the majority of society told you, even if your heart, mind, and spirit told you that your love was real, that your relationship was not unnatural, 
that your power and capacity to give and accept love was just as real as anyone else's? Can we believe what our fellow gay members of the church tell us about the person they love? Are we willing to really listen to them, to understand them, and to trust them when they share the sincere feelings of their heart? Even if what they say goes against our prejudices and requires us to question historical precedent and tradition, can we give some weight to their personal experience? Consider these words from Berta Marquez. Quote, Tonight in the evening, after the gloaming, I went to the shore to ride the waves. The sea was expansive and endless. As I went deeper and the water surrounded me, I thought about how much I wanted to remember and feel the vastness of the universe, of this moment. I was grateful for the beauty of it. I had to stop in the waves to try to absorb what was around me, in the water, in the evening sky. But the thing I want to remember most is how, upon exiting the sea, my little board in tow, looking through the crowds for my companion, she had already taken the initiative to walk to where I was, towel outstretched, ready to surround me in warmth and comfort. This is the person I married, my helpmate, my fellow traveler, my wife. Every day I am legitimately awed by her thoughtfulness and kindness. I am grateful for the communion of our partnership. I invite those who feel ambivalent about LGBT families, our lives and our marriages, to reflect on this. The daily ordinary comforts, hopes, and joys you cherish beat within our hearts as well. Carefully catalog the purpose, strengths, hope, and life-giving warmth you feel as you lie beside your beloved, as you wash the dishes together, as you discuss the coming days and how you hope to grow old together. Then think about asking another to forego those blessings and privileges you enjoy daily and ask if perhaps it is okay for others, though different from you in ways small or great, might not also deserve access to the same life-affirming blessings you derive daily from the companion beside you. I hope you will see why the same things are vital to us, why we too need the emotional, spiritual, and companionate love that makes life so worth living. I hope you will see with new eyes. Close quote. Part 4. Examination of the Church's Position from an Empirical Basis The doctrinal and moral sections of this article primarily use reason and logic to examine the Church's position on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. This section attempts to examine the Church's position from an empirical perspective. The word empirical can be defined as based on observation or experience rather than theory or pure logic. Jesus advocated this approach in judging whether something was of God when he taught by their fruits ye shall know them. Elder M. Russell Ballard has stated that a church or any way of life should be judged by the fruits or results that it generates. Therefore, if the church's position on homosexuality is based on eternal truth and is morally sound, we would expect that living that way would produce good fruit, while being in a same-sex relationship would produce bad fruit. Ideally, an empirical approach would be based on studies and surveys that employ scientific methods. There have been a small number of rigorous surveys of gay Mormons conducted over the years, with a recent one published in a peer-reviewed academic journal. However, critics of these studies point out that the survey respondents are self-selected as opposed to being randomly selected, and the study authors have an agenda or are biased against the church, maybe because the survey results consistently show highly negative outcomes associated with the gay people trying to live according to the church's position. However, it is notable that there have been no studies or surveys published by groups or individuals who advocate for the Church's position as a way of life for gay people. Leaving these studies behind, I will share my personal observations as someone who has two gay sons 
helped found an LDS LGBT support group that has over 500 members and actively participates in Affirmation, the largest and oldest LDS LGBT organization in existence. In the 13 years since my oldest son came out, I have read and studied extensively on this subject. I have met and personally know hundreds of LGBT people. I have read the personal accounts and experiences of hundreds more, and I belong to a number of social media groups specifically for LDS LGBT people and their friends and families. I recognize many may find fault with my observations. Admittedly, I am just one person. But you don't have to just take my word for it. If you start talking to gay people and others who are familiar with these issues, I believe you will hear the same stories and that they will confirm my observations. Take from it what you will. Here are my observations of the fruits most commonly associated with gay people who are raised in the church and who are trying to live the church's position of lifelong celibacy. Fruits of the church's position, early stages, acknowledging being gay or same-sex attracted. Extreme guilt and self-loathing, even when living church standards. Depression and despair with occasional suicidal thoughts. Extreme religiosity and scrupulosity. Perfectionism and unhealthy obsession with righteous living and rule-keeping in hopes of changing or proving worthiness. Later stages, realizing sexual orientation isn't changing. Periods of depression and despair with suicidal thoughts, sometimes leading to suicide. Social-emotional detachment, inability to form relationships with others. Stagnation, apathy, hopelessness. Overcompensation, perfectionism, overachievement. Obsessive-compulsive behavior associated with pornography and masturbation, made worse by feelings of shame, worthlessness, and hopelessness. Living in a perpetual cycle of shame, trying to suppress innate sexuality and live according to the church's high standards but always falling short, that is, having periodic hookups, falling into pornography, etc. Loss of faith, anger and bitterness against the church and God. And finally, the vast majority leave the church to preserve emotional and mental health. Now, here are some examples of these fruits as related by gay members of the church in their own words. From Laura Root, quote, At the age of 44, I began to finally deal honestly with being gay. The moment that all the pieces came together hit me hard and forced me to confront my sexuality. It was one of the most awful moments of my life. Thoughts of my future in this life and into the eternities suddenly fell down hard on me, the heaviest burden I have ever felt. Like so many gay Mormons, I experienced severe depression for several months and even some suicidal thinking. I couldn't bear the thought of never experiencing love again in this life and of never even hoping for it. In addition, of course, were the questions of my eternal happiness. The church taught I would need to be sealed to a man at some point in order to receive eternal happiness, and yet the thought of being with a man for eternity did not feel like happiness to me. I also could not imagine ever leaving the church I loved, with all my friends and family, and which I believed contained the gospel of Jesus Christ. The agony and despair I felt at the time was overwhelming. I barely ate. I barely slept. I knew I needed something to keep me going, so I read the Book of Mormon daily. It was like an IV drip of spiritual nourishment, and I depended on it. Still, I had questions. Did Heavenly Father give me the ability to bond with and fall in love with another human being, and then require me to not use it as a condition of my salvation? Close quote. From Caden Maxwell, age 16. I knew then I was gay. 
My heart sunk to my stomach. My entire world went into panic mode. I couldn't keep up in school. I couldn't look my parents in the eye. I became like a turtle in a shell, completely hidden, avoiding the world completely, not trusting anyone. No one could know. I was disgusted with myself, and I wanted nothing more than to get over it. No one could know. I prayed night after night that God would remove this horrible aspect of my life. My pillow was always wet with tears as I pleaded with the master of the universe to just please fix the mistake he made on me. I stopped eating. I didn't have time for food. I was consumed with terror for my soul. I tried to starve it out of me. I tried to pray it out of me. I tried to sleep it away. But it was all useless. This was me. Mom caught on fast to my mood changes. One night, after questioning me deeply concerning my recent moods and appetite loss, she finally asked me, Are you attracted to guys? She said it lovingly and with concern, but the words shook my entire being. They ripped open the vault inside where my feelings were hidden and they shot to the surface, overwhelming me in panic and fear for the future. I nodded through tears and finally met her eyes. We knew we had a mountain ahead, but in that moment we knew we had each other to climb it with. We talked to the bishop. My options were clear. I could marry a woman or I could be single my entire life. But not to worry. In the afterlife I would be perfected, he told me. I would be attracted to girls like I'm supposed to, and I could have a family there. The perfect plan for my life that I had learned since birth no longer applied to me. I didn't fit. Despite the unwavering support from my parents, my soul became draped in darkness. The world became hell to me, with the flames of self-loathing furiously burning everywhere. I was left so uninformed. I needed answers and no one had any. I was left only with God works in mysterious ways to comfort me and explain why my world was falling apart while others didn't even know the taste of doubt. I felt almost ignored, given up on. We tried and tried, but not even the bishop had the answers I needed. I was left always questioning and never knowing. Who was I? Why would God send me so broken? Didn't he love me enough to want me to be happy too? What would happen if others knew? What made me this way? Could this ever be removed from me? How could I say I don't support gay marriage when in truth that is the most excitement and support I felt about anything? Was I still a good person? I was doomed to live an entire lifetime alone. But I was told that it would all be over after this life, and soon the conclusion set in that my best hope was to end my life by my own hand. I had nothing to look forward to. I didn't have a happy life plan like all the kids around me. All I had to hold on to was the hope that my burden of liking guys would be gone after I died. There were examples of people before me escaping the task by ending life short. Mom feared that I would be one of them. She watched me close, but the depression was everywhere. I didn't like myself. I felt horribly ugly inside. I would go to church and be offended because there was talk of evil gay marriage. I sat quietly while my friends that I'd grown up with would accuse gays of being selfish, immoral, manipulative, and many other things that I felt I was not. The more I went to church, the sadder I felt. The less I liked myself the more I hated my religion. For a while, I was convinced that the only way I would ever make it to a long life was if I left church completely. Sarah Lewis I have struggled in different degrees throughout my life with understanding my place in the church and what God's view of me is. A common experience I hear among gay members of the church, including myself, is that of self-loathing, guilt, and shame surrounding those feelings of same-sex attraction we experience throughout our lives. The rhetoric I remember as a child associated homosexuality with perversion, abomination, and one of the most sinful acts that could be committed towards God. 
I remember as a teenager being very confused as to why I could not rid myself of these feelings, even with countless hours spent on my knees praying to take them away. As time went on, it became more and more apparent that I was still attracted to women and not to men, even after being married to James for several years. I still would pray almost daily for God to change my sexual orientation and would be met by silence. I was hurt and frustrated that God was not answering these prayers, especially when I felt his influence in so many other areas of my life. I became depressed and hopeless that the righteous blessings I desired would never be given to me, and that God did not love or care for me, that I was a hopeless cause. John Bonner Dear 14-year-old me, I see you there in the pews, head bowed, lines of tears marking divides down hot, embarrassed cheeks and pulling up in blurry smudges on the pages of the hymnal as you let the sacrament pass you by because you believe you're not worthy. I see you standing alone in front of the basement window in complete darkness and silently mouthing the words, I'm gay, for the first time, and vowing never to speak those words aloud to anyone. I see you pleading, begging, night after night on callous knees to have these feelings taken away from you, rooted out of you and destroyed. I see you confessing to the bishop that you touched yourself again and knowing with unquestioning certainty that no one else in the world has ever been as base and depraved as you are. I see you writing promises in your journal, written with such intense pressure that you can still read the impression of every word for many pages beyond the original entry, to never let Satan get a hold of your heart again, to never abuse your body or mind with impure thoughts, to be the righteous, obedient son God wants you to be from that moment forward, to be perfect even as he is. I see you looking up ways to die, and making plans, and rehearsing in your mind what the note should say believing the world would be better off without you, trying not to imagine how it would break your mother's heart, wondering if anyone else would miss you or even care that you were gone. I see you playing your guitar and singing love songs about girls and wanting to believe that you'll feel that way someday, and sometimes when you're alone in your room and no one's listening, daring to use male pronouns in those love songs and feeling a wash of profound shame extinguishing the fleeting rush of excitement that stirs within you. I see you listening to firesides and reading scriptures and researching church articles and books that make mention of people like you. I feel your deep despair as you are compared to rapists and pedophiles and murderers. As you're told that you'll bring about the destruction of society and the end of times calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets, I know that you fear it's true, that you in this homosexual state are irredeemable. Trevor Cook as the realization of the reality of it, that is being gay, crystallized and as I acknowledged it to myself, all the thoughts and feelings I had innocently earlier ignored now weighed on me with tremendous guilt. I always felt tons of guilt all through my teenage life, especially during and immediately after the prolonged realization referred to above. You can't imagine this guilt unless you've experienced it. It's not really for anything you've done and it's not always very strong, but it's always there nagging at the back of your mind making you question everything. There are tear marks in my scriptures over verses about worthiness. I was emotionally devastated in a seminary class once when a young teacher told a story of a mission companion admitting to him in tears that he felt attracted to the same sex and the whole class erupting in loud boisterous laughter and the teacher recovering, although I think he had a nobler purpose in mind for the story but the students wouldn't have it, by laughing it off and assuring the class that he was straight as an arrow. 
Gina Lowry Peterson. Living with a gay heart and a Mormon heart was excruciating for me. I could figure out how to make the two hearts coexist with each other. I remained closeted and in pain for years. My mind told me I needed to choose one heart or the other, but I couldn't. Both hearts meant so much to me, and I couldn't bear the thought of losing one or the other. I wanted to feel true, completely true to my orientation, and honor my gay heart and live a life with Peg. But I loved Todd with all of my heart and wanted to live true to my covenants that I had made with him. I wanted to raise a family with him and experience the life I had always pictured in the church. But something had to give. I couldn't have it all. I had exhausted myself trying to make both relationships work. I loved both Peg and Todd so deeply. I was backed into a corner and there was no way out. After becoming suicidal, I was desperate for help and checked into the hospital. I remember that first night. I was in so much pain I couldn't even bring myself to pray. In fact, I could barely breathe. My whole body felt as though it were in a dark abyss, one that would swallow me whole. I felt lost and scared. I honestly felt like I had died. If I were to choose my gay heart, I would lose Todd. If I were to choose my Mormon heart, I would lose Peg, which meant to feel love and connection in a way that felt complete to me. I just couldn't handle the pain of either choice. Jesse, I felt discouraged that I had not changed. My life felt stagnant. Many times I thought of driving off a cliff or into a rock wall, but luckily it was just thoughts that filled my mind on those serene, lonely drives. Over the next five years, I continued to go through cycles of false hope, frustration, and depression. My mind just keeps going in circles. I think I have no hope of marrying, so I get depressed and think I have no purpose in my life. So I think of just ending it now. It would make things so much less painful. Just think of having to endure never being intimate physically or emotionally with anyone. Every day I am at a crossroad. I am paralyzed to succeed in my life. My procrastination and negative thoughts poison my future. I spoke a lot of how my faith in God has waned and that I honestly do not believe in God anymore. I said, I could not understand how a God with a plan of eternal families could put 2-5% to of his children down on earth, lacking the fundamental key to be able to at least marry. I reread a lot of teachings of the church, and I realized that the teachings I had been taught about homosexuality were incorrect and were based on false stereotypes. I began to feel betrayed. I finally accepted that being gay did not make me broken. I accepted that I was not innately evil. I realized that if any of the amazing guys that I had been attracted to had reciprocated my interest, then I would have been in a committed monogamous relationship. I had never wanted to live the stereotypical gay lifestyle that I had been taught was what gays innately wanted to act out. I knew I wanted and aspired to have the same type of relationship that many straight Mormons desire to have. Close quote. These examples portray much sadness and despair, giving the impression that gay people are broken and emotionally unhealthy. But the fact is, they tend to be some of the most talented, inspiring, passionate, and accomplished people you will meet. It is not being gay that causes the emotional trauma and mental anguish. It is being gay and raised in a religion and culture that tells you from the time you are an innocent child that your feelings of love and attraction are degrading and sinful, something you must extinguish and bury deep inside. Unlike your straight friends and siblings who revel in their crushes, falling in love and showing physical affection, dating and marrying, you are taught the love and attraction you feel is from Satan, and if expressed, even in a loving monogamous marriage, will cause society's downfall and the destruction of the family, and you will be declared an apostate, an enemy of the church. Some of the toxic atmosphere can be alleviated as members become more educated about LGBT people and less homophobic, 
more compassionate and, and empathetic. However, as long as the church tells gay people that this deeply felt integral part of their nature is no different than, in Elder Oak's words, an alcoholic's predisposition or susceptibility to alcoholism, it is inflicting spiritual and emotional harm on them. How can anyone deny that what the church teaches about gay people, even if you believe it is from God, is not harmful to them? How many of us who are straight would stay in the church if we were told that our love and affection for our beloved spouses was evil and must be abandoned? When almost every gay person you talk to who is raised in the church tells you that they had suicidal thoughts at certain points in their lives because of the intense conflict of being gay and being Mormon, how can anyone deny that the suicide epidemic among Utah youth does not have some connection to the church's increased public rhetoric against LGBT issues, starting with the Prop 8 campaign in 2008. How difficult is it to see that for most gay people, leaving the church is the rational thing to do to preserve their mental and emotional health. Most of the gay people I know are out of the church to one degree or another. If we truly care, we should try to understand why. It seems there are two alternative answers to this question of why they leave. It has to be either, one, gay people are spiritually weaker and less able to resist temptation than their heterosexual peers, or two, there is something wrong with the church's position on homosexuality. Addressing the first answer, it is my observation that gay people tend to be very spiritually sensitive and attuned to religious belief, even more so perhaps than their straight peers. So many of them have a gentleness, kindness, and innate Christ-like love and sensitivity that comes with their sexual orientation. As Jonathan Manwaring put it, My personal experience with nearly every single gay person I've met has been the same. There is something special, sensitive, spiritual, and kind in each of them that I believe is a gift from God. My wife Rachel tells me that she can see something special in their eyes. I believe it is a gift of the Spirit because of their nature. Could it be possible that our gay brothers and sisters aren't just born with distinct attractions, but are also born with a common, special gift of the Spirit that is intended to bless, strengthen, and influence others? Is it possible that the often soft, nurturing, and gentle nature of those who are gay could be intended to help those of us who are rough, withdrawn, and hardened? What if the special gifts of our gay loved ones could lead us closer to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Close quote. In the cruelest of ironies, these most spiritually sensitive among us have their hearts crushed by the very church they look to for healing. They are taught that their innate natures and desires are merely inclinations or susceptibilities like alcoholism or drug addiction. They who are so blessed with creativity, sensitivity, and affection are told that if they ever express those feelings for someone they love, they will be cast out of the church. In addition to the loss of physical life, can we not see how these teachings destroy spirits, destroy faith, and turn our brothers and sisters into enemies? Would we act any different if we experienced what this LDS gay woman describes? Quote, I first knew that I liked girls the way I was supposed to like guys when I was in kindergarten. The innocent crushes of a little child were devastating to me. I knew I was different from the other little girls I knew, and I worked hard to hide that. Living in fear of someone finding out I was same-sex attracted was nothing compared to the torment of believing that since God knew everything about me, he knew and he hated me. Consider that for a moment. A six-year-old, with all the innocence in the world, believed that God hated her. And why was that? Because of the way gay people were talked about, the fear and hatred in adults' voices when they were mentioned. Children are aware of the current issues, and children will listen. Close quote. 
I belong to a private Facebook group for active LDS parents who have LGBT children. There are over 750 members at last count, with parents joining every day. In reading the stories of these parents, particularly those whose teen children are just coming out as gay, one of the most common themes is that before coming out, the children begin pulling away from the church. While saddened that their children pull away from the church they love, these parents come to realize that they would rather have an emotionally healthy, well-adjusted gay child out of the church than a suicidal, emotionally unhealthy child in the church. A small proportion of gay people are able to remain active in the church, although that number continues to decline with age, and some actually return to activity in the church after leaving. They are able to maintain a healthy attitude and sense of self-worth because they do not internalize what the church tells them. They believe they are whole and undamaged, that being gay is how God intended them to be, and by my observation, most of them do not believe that same-sex marriage is against God's will, even if they have not chosen that path for themselves in order to maintain full fellowship in the church, at least for the time being. Now that we've looked at the fruits of gay people who are trying to live the church's position, it is time to consider and observe the fruits of those who are living in committed, faithful, same-sex relationships. A common refrain among religious people is found in this statement by President James E. Faust. Quote, the false belief of inborn homosexual orientation denies to repentant souls the opportunity to change and will ultimately lead to discouragement, disappointment, and despair. Close quote. This view is understandable and logical if acting on one's homosexuality is believed to be sinful and against God's will. In this view, gay people may find momentary pleasure in living counter to God's laws, but ultimately they will come to find out that wickedness never was happiness and they will reap the bitter fruits of their unrighteous choices. But what if we find the opposite? What if we observe that gay people living in long-term, committed same-sex relationships are just as happy as their straight counterparts? What if we find that gay couples who live the law of chastity in the same manner required of straight couples, that is, no sexual relations outside of marriage, and total fidelity within marriage, receive the same blessings and positive outcomes as straight couples who live that law? I have met and come to know many same-sex married gay couples, some who have been married only a short time and some who have been married many years. Here are some of the positive fruits that I have observed. Happiness and fulfillment, stability and commitment, sincere love and concern for each other, greater emotional and spiritual well-being, a light in their countenance and the fruits of the Spirit evidenced in their lives. In other words, the blessings and benefits of marriage appear to be available to all those who are willing to abide by that covenant, regardless of whether they are gay or straight. Here are some more examples of these fruits as related by gay people in their own words. Berta Marquez My faith has become something more inclusive than the tribal exceptionalism that we so readily embrace in Mormonism. After all, I have had many experiences with God's affirming love for me and my wife individually and as a married couple. I witnessed the fruits of the Spirit in our little family, even when the ecclesiastical leaders of my faith tradition assert that this could not possibly be so. I know what it is like to be a 14-year-old with an unconventional experience with God to share, and to have people, even religious and political leaders of the highest repute, say that it could not possibly be so. But here I am, feeling profoundly loved and affirmed by the divine as an LGBT daughter of God, and I cannot deny it. Now more than ever, we can feel God's hand gently guiding and lighting the way for our little family. Trey and Guy 
Our lives have been deeply blessed. It hasn't been without its struggles, challenges, and sorrows. 36 years ago, I survived the suicide of my first love, a boy who brought me so much joy. It scarred and devastated me, and I thought at that time that I'd never find happiness. If a person from the future told me that on that day 36 years ago that I'd one day have a soulmate who I was committed to, loved, and cherished decades later, I would have not believed it. But if it had turned out that that was all true, it would have been enough. If you told me that we'd have two sweet, wonderful daughters, I wouldn't have believed it, but it would have been enough. If you then told me that we'd have a supportive, loving, extended family and many close and wonderful friends, I wouldn't have believed it, but it would have been enough. Then, if this person from the future told me that we'd be legally married, well, I would have had him committed. But it's all true, and we are blessed. I wish I could go back and tell my 17-year-old self that it didn't just get better. It got unbelievable. Teresa and Rachel. Teresa and I met when Teresa was a recently returned missionary and we were both attending school at BYU. We became very close friends and eventually fell in love with each other. We didn't always recognize that we were in love with each other as a relationship of more than friends was against our religious beliefs. But in retrospect, it is very clear that we have been in love and committed to each other for over 10 years. We had a love that not everyone gets to have. So how could we continue to refuse to accept it? Why sit around waiting for something else and beating ourselves up when the truth of the matter is that we just love each other? We didn't know where that left the church in our lives, but in that moment we just stopped worrying about it. The hands which had been holding on to the church so tightly just let go, and we wondered what the future would hold. But the most amazing thing happened. From the moment we made the decision to just love each other, the underlying angst, depressions, anxiety, worry, insecurity, and anger have virtually disappeared. We never expected that. We never thought that could be possible. We never thought that just allowing ourselves to love and be loved would be such a freeing experience. Jeffrey Early in his life, Jeffrey realized he was gay, and he struggled with his testimony and where he would fit within the church. After working with his bishop for some time and to try to dismiss his homosexual feelings, Jeffrey found that he wasn't happy and was missing something, something he didn't find in his relationships with women. Deciding to dismiss his feelings regarding the church, he tried to live the quote-unquote gay lifestyle. He entered a sexual relationship with another man, but found he still wasn't happy or fulfilled, and that part of him was still missing. A turning point came when he realized that God loves him and will continue to love him unconditionally, in other words, Jeffrey realized that he doesn't need to separate his homosexuality from his spirituality. Jeffrey met someone who was gay and who respected and loved the church. They eventually married, and now Jeffrey feels emotionally and spiritually whole. Max Eddington As a gay married man, I can tell you that life for me and Michael is not a crusade to destroy the country's values or to attack the marriages of our heterosexual friends and neighbors. Nor is our marriage a sparkling rainbow land where no one ever frowns and unicorns wake up in the morning, although that would be awesome. Our marriage is a marriage. We eat breakfast together every morning, we go to work, we talk about our day and the things that are important to us, we go on date nights and watch TV shows in bed. We are two people who love each other and try to be better every day. Someday we hope to be dads and we will give our kids as much love, support, and education as they can handle. Although our marriage has always been legal in the eyes of the federal government, I can tell you that there is a different feeling in my heart and mind today, knowing that our rights as a married couple are full and complete no matter where we go in our country. 
It's the feeling of relief from an oppression that I didn't even know I was feeling. John Gustav Rathall. I know the church is true. That has been my polar star the last eight years of my life and trying to navigate a way forward. I've discovered, partly by following very personal spiritual promptings, as well as through some very special priesthood blessings received from my bishop, from my father, from home teachers, and last fall from an apostle of the Lord, that I have a unique earthly mission. In order to fulfill that mission, I have needed to stay close to the church and to exercise a certain kind of faith. I also know my relationship with my husband is true. That has been the ground beneath my feet. It has been the horizon that has made following that polar star of my church testimony meaningful. The journey of making sense of my gayness and eventually finding and committing to my husband is a journey I have been making from the time I was old enough to be aware of my sexuality and old enough to begin to figure out the nature of my yearnings for relationship and family since I was roughly 11. I love my husband, Euron. I have loved him for 22 years as of our upcoming anniversary at the end of next week. In that time, my love for him has only grown stronger through every fight we have resolved and every challenge we have faced. It was a long, long time ago I realized I would give my life for him. What diminishes him diminishes me. My soul, body, and spirit cleave to him. And I can honestly say that today, on this day, I love him more than I have on any other day that has preceded this. And I can honestly say that that love has always elevated me. It has always made me want to be and has helped me to be a better man. I love God. I love his church because I love him. And I have found that this love elevates and exalts my soul and makes me want to be more, to be better, to be like God. This love has made me see more clearly than any other the connections between me, my husband, our son, my parents, my siblings, all my brothers and sisters of every nation, all my brothers and sisters, human, animal, and element, all creation. I yearn for all those loves and connections to be eternal. I yearn to love in a way that is worthy of eternity. Laura Root As I sit in fast and testimony meeting this morning, I hear one man speak of families. He expresses the immense joy he feels in his life because he has a wife and family. He says he has recently been wondering why families are so important to our Heavenly Father that all of his spirit children are born into and raised in families. He then answers his own question by stating, It is because within marriage and families we learn to love like God. Exactly, I thought. That is exactly why I proposed to my girlfriend two weeks ago. I want to become like my Heavenly Father and learn to love others unconditionally, and I want the opportunity to be married to help me refine that process. After countless hours and months of studying, pondering, and praying, and line upon line I had a number of other spiritual experiences that re reaffirmed God's love, kindness, and mercy for me, He led me to know that not only does He love me more than I can imagine, He also wants me to enjoy the blessings and challenges and the refining process of committing my life to loving and serving the person that I love, even if that person is another woman. Eventually, I began dating again, only this time I looked for the gender that was right for me, the gender that would allow me to truly bond, connect, and find happiness and meaning with another human soul. Believe me, I am well aware that this makes no sense to most of my family and friends. It leads many to feel angry, sad, and confused. Some of my family members have largely shut me out of their lives. Fortunately for me, I also have members of my family who are supportive of me. Additionally, I have some friends and ward members who, likewise, value my friendship and affirm me on a regular basis. 
I am so thankful for them. I am a different person than I was two and a half years ago. I have a stronger relationship with my Heavenly Father. I have a more clear understanding of who I am and what my responsibility is in this life. I have felt the power of the atonement in my heart as I have struggled to choose love and patience over anger and resentment. I know what I have felt and experienced as I have searched for answers and have tried to put my trust in the personal promptings I have been given. I am so excited and thrilled to be getting married in two months to the woman I love. I feel the love of my Heavenly Father within this relationship. I am so grateful to Heavenly Father who, in His kindness and mercy, has shown me how I can be my authentic self and still have a meaningful and solid relationship with Him and my Savior. Although it is not as it once was, I look forward to continuing my relationship with the LDS Church, the church I love, where thankfully I have many kind and loving friends." Close quote. In addition to the positive fruits marriage brings to individuals and families, it strengthens our communities and society as a whole. The societal benefits of marriage apply to homosexuals as much as they apply to heterosexuals, as described by John Gustav Rathall here. Quote, 1. It is in the best interests of our society to promote stable, lasting pair bondings. Allowing same-sex marriage as an option helps to remove the social stigma on homosexuality. It will encourage same-sex-oriented individuals to come out of the closet and pair bond or marry other same-sex-oriented individuals. This is what opponents of same-sex marriage do not want. But it is, nevertheless, in society's best interest because it will reduce the likelihood that closeted individuals will enter into inherently unstable unions with persons of the opposite sex. It will correspondingly increase the likelihood that they will form lasting commitments with persons they are attracted to and who are attracted to them. 2. We are individually and collectively stronger when we are members of a family. Families are the oldest form of social insurance there is. Being married means you have someone to rely on if you get sick, if you lose your job, or if you experience any other form of misfortune. That someone is there to take care of you, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. I know this has been true for both me and Yoren. In our going on 18 years together, there, has been times, there have been times when me or the other of us have been down and out, and the other has been there as number one cheerleader and supporter. Opponents of same-sex marriage would prefer that if gay people can't be married to a member of the opposite sex, that they be single for life. But in whose best interest is that really? Certainly not in the state's interest. When a person who is alone falls, who is there to help pick him up? Individuals live in families, and families live in societies. If an individual falls, if he has no immediate family, extended family is expected to help. If extended family is non-existent or ineffective, then it falls to the larger society. Forcing gay people to be alone weakens the fabric of society. Because Yuren and I have been able to help each other over the years, we are stronger. We've been able to become resources to others. In recent years, we have become foster parents, able to provide a loving home to children who have fallen through the cracks of society. So the fact that we exist as a family unit means we can provide resources to help care for others, to become a part of a social safety net. And three, marriage promotes morality and makes us more spiritually sensitive. Refusing same-sex couples the right to marry essentially sends a message to gay folks that the normal rules and expectations of sexual morality don't apply to us the way they do to everybody else. It also sends another subtler and more damaging message, that gay people are inferior to heterosexual people, that we don't deserve stability, love, or family, that we are inherently morally inferior, 
This damaging message encourages just the kinds of reckless, immoral behavior that the opponents of same-sex marriage claim to oppose. By legalizing same-sex marriage, we send gay folks the message that they are expected to abide by the same social norms, the same morality that we expect of everyone else. When Yoren and I got married, it had a huge psychological impact on me. I became aware of a profound responsibility to my significant other. It changed the way I thought about myself and about my sexuality. Committing myself to my husband and being willing to bridle my sexuality in a way that honors my love for him and my commitment to him has changed my life in so many ways for the better. In many ways, those commitments paved the way for me to come back to the church. I believe living in a way that honored my love for him made me more sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. It is those spiritual benefits of the kind of love and commitment that can be fostered in marriage that I personally consider one of the greatest benefits of marriage. Though, for obvious reasons, such as social stability and the reduction of sexually transmitted diseases, providing a social framework that discourages promiscuity and encourages sexual morality among gay men and lesbians is also a benefit that strengthens not just the individuals involved, but society as a whole. These examples are not to say that gay people are immune from the marital relationship problems that all people face. Indeed, I am aware of some same-sex marriages that were perhaps entered into too hastily and have ended in divorce. But the joy gay couples are finding in the right to marry may be injecting new life into an institution that seems to be dying out in much of secular society. Who would have thought that gay marriage might actually strengthen the institution of marriage in society? Empirical Basis Conclusion until relatively recently, society in general used to take much the same position as the church on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. The church sees society's departure from that position as evidence of moral decay. However, the reason we as a society, including a growing number in the church, are moving away from the church's position is that we have been able to observe for ourselves the lives of gay people rather than relying solely on tradition and the cultural prejudices of past generations. Gay people are our friends, neighbors, co-workers, and even our own sons and daughters. As they have been able to live their lives more openly and authentically, rather than in fear and hiding, we are able to see for ourselves that they are really no different than we are, that they are better off living with the same freedoms and opportunities we all have, without shame, without condemnation, and without making them feel that their lives are bringing about the downfall of society and destruction of the family. If we judge the church's position on homosexuality and same-sex marriage by its fruits as described above, and those fruits are accurate, can we still unequivocally say that this is the position of God? Like the church's earlier teachings about black people, its position on homosexuality is resulting in great spiritual and emotional harm. If the church does not believe these fruits as I and many others have observed them, then with the stakes so high, one could only hope that the church would do all in its power to confirm or refute these observations. It has the ability to commission reliable studies and surveys, to conduct large-scale interviews of gay people, to talk to LDS parents who have gay children, and to determine whether its position truly has a positive or negative impact on the lives of gay people. Perhaps it is doing or already done so. If so, and it finds no basis for the negative fruits observed above, one would think the church would publicize this information to confirm why it holds its position and to give people some much-needed comfort, especially considering the many families whose kids have committed suicide. But if the results of such investigation do confirm the negative outcomes associated with the church's position, 
I acknowledge it would take great humility and some awkwardness for the church to reverse its position after expressing such certainty for so long, or else it would have to somehow try to explain how it is still God's will despite the horrible outcomes. I pray every day for our leaders to have inspiration, empathy, strength, and humility to be able to ask for and discern God's will on this issue. Part 5. Where to from here? As pointed out at the beginning of this article, the Church has evolved significantly on this issue, and aside from the emotional and spiritual trauma caused by the November 2015 policy, the Church has taken a number of positive steps that have led to greater understanding of and compassion for our gay members of the Church. However, no matter how much the Church encourages love and understanding, no matter how much it tells gay people that there is no sin in being gay, but their deep inner desire for love and companionship is considered a defect, like a susceptibility to alcoholism, this message will continue to cause hopelessness, shame, and bitterness, and will continue to result in depression, suicide, and loss of faith. More education on this issue and more love and empathy for our gay members will help mitigate some of the negative symptoms they experience. But the reality is, as long as gay members are treated as unequal to straight members, as long as they are taught from the time they are young that their core natures are essentially a defect that will be fixed in the next life, their psyches and spirits will be damaged and they will ultimately leave. Can we really expect otherwise? Would we do any differently if we were in their place? Prior to the 1978 revelation on the priesthood, wasn't it logical to expect that the majority of black people would find the church a hostile and damaging place because they couldn't receive the same blessings as white members and were taught that they carried the curse of Cain and were spiritually inferior to whites in the pre-existence? Should we expect our gay members to respond any differently given what the church teaches about their nature? Just as it took a major doctrinal change in 1978 for the church to allow black people to be treated as whole human beings and spiritually equal to white people, Nothing less than a similar doctrinal change regarding our characterization of homosexuality will allow us to treat gay people as whole human beings and spiritually equal to straight people. As previously discussed, the doctrinal change does not require changing our doctrines on eternal marriage or eternal families. It simply requires, one, applying the law of chastity equally to all members regardless of sexual orientation, and two, recognizing that marriage has the same ability to bless and ennoble the lives of gay couples as straight couples. Following such a doctrinal change, at some point, temple ceilings for same-sex couples would need to be addressed to ensure equal treatment of all couples who feel their love and commitment is eternal. Because Joseph Smith's teachings on relations between couples in the afterlife and the nature of spiritual procreation are still so vague and undeveloped, there appears to be no theological or doctrinal reason that this issue couldn't be addressed. There is ample historical and theological basis for exploring the possibilities for LGBT people, as has been done in several very well thought out papers and essays. The longer this change is in coming, the more people we will lose, not just gay people, but increasingly their family members, their friends, and other sympathetic members of the church, particularly younger people who do not see same-sex marriage as a threat to society or a sin against God. And unlike black people who had the choice of not joining the church during the priesthood temple ban, gay babies are born into the church every day and at increasing numbers as the church grows. Their departure, along with their families and those who care about them, ultimately harms us as a church more than it does them. 
It leaves a gaping wound in our church, the body of Christ, and sadly it is our doctrine, not their weak character or lack of spirituality, that is pushing them out. I can anticipate one likely response to this belief. Some might say, if the doctrine is God's will, it is out of our hands. Regardless of the despair, the suicides, the mental anguish, the bitterness, the ultimate loss of faith and loss of members, some will argue that we cannot change what God has decreed. But do we really believe these fruits are acceptable to God and in accordance with his revealed will? Or are we leaning too much into our own heterosexual understanding? Do we believe in continuing revelation or not? Do we not have enough scriptural historical precedent demonstrating that revelation comes not just when God decides, but primarily when we seek it out? Think of most of the major revelations given to Joseph Smith. Think of the 1978 revelation to President Kimball. All came in response to questioning, seeking, and petitioning the Lord for answers to sincere and sometimes difficult questions. We must remember these fundamental precepts of our church. From the Ninth Article of Faith, we believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. From Second Nephi 28, verse 27, Yea, woe be unto him that saith, We have received, and we need no more. And from Doctrine and Covenants 9, verse 8, But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind, then you must ask me if it be right, and if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. It is my hope that church members and leaders might sincerely ponder the foundation of their own beliefs on this topic, study it out, and sincerely ask God if it is right, just as President Kimball did when he began to see the harmful fruits of the church's doctrines on race. If the answers are not forthcoming or fully apparent at this time, might it be better to be less strident and more humble about what we claim to be the will of God? If we fear to err, might it be better to err on the side of mercy and agency and trust more in the Savior's atonement than in our own imperfect knowledge? At a minimum, if church leaders realize their words are taken by the membership as God's own words and their pronouncements and rhetoric on this issue affect the lives of thousands in such a significant way, can they perhaps speak less stridently and with more compassion? A simple temporary solution, the pastoral approach. Even if the leadership of the church are not ready to seek a 1978-style revelation and cannot conceive of questioning the doctrine anytime soon, there is a temporary pastoral approach that, while it won't fully staunch the outflow of gay members and their families, would at least slow it. It is actually something that a few wards and stakes around the country have been doing already, although less so since the November 2015 policy. It is this simple message. Come worship with us and bring your spouse or partner. You will always be welcome in our ward. You have nothing to fear. We love you and we need you. That message, along with the decision not to automatically initiate church disciplinary action unless the person desires it as a way back into full fellowship, would do so much to heal the spiritual wounds we have inflicted and make the church a Zion community. Even if gay members can't participate as members in full fellowship, their marriages and partnerships can be treated with respect and dignity. These individuals should also be treated with love and respect and allowed to worship with us without any fear of church reprisal. If a gay person or couple who has already suffered so much at the church's hands and has wrestled mightily with the decision on how to live their life now feels a spiritual pull to attend church again, does it make sense to punish them with the harshest action the church can take 
or to make them feel like they are too unworthy and spiritually damaged to simply attend church with us? How I wish we could at least make this simple change in the interim. A final plea for understanding and empathy. For those who have sincerely considered everything in this essay, have spiritually wrestled with these ideas, have tried to understand and feel what our gay members go through, have asked God and sought inspiration on the matter, and still reach the conclusion that committed monogamous same-sex marriage is against God's will and the church is better off maintaining its current position, I grant you the respect to believe as your heart and conscience tell you. May I ask the same thing of you? Will you please allow me and others who have spiritually struggled with this issue and reached a different conclusion the right to our agency and personal revelation without judging us to be apostates, unfaithful, or unworthy of being your fellow citizens with the saints? Seeing the spiritual and emotional harm our gay family members and friends suffer in the church makes it hard enough to maintain faith and trust in the church without our fellow members making it any harder by marginalizing and judging us for our sincere beliefs. Above all, will you recognize the supreme sacrifice our LDS gay members must make because of the position we as a church put them in? To live the church's position, they must give up a core part of their humanity, their ability to fully and completely love another person and choose lifelong celibacy, something no one else in the church is asked to do. If, on the other hand, after much internal debate, prayer, and spiritual struggle, they do not feel the call to sacrifice that part of their humanity, they are then forced to give up full fellowship in the church and are all too often shunned or looked down on by their fellow members of the church and even members of their family. No matter what choice they make, stay in line with the church or fall in love and find a companion, they lose something precious. Can you put yourself in their shoes, try to imagine what this impossible choice must feel like, and let empathy and Christ-like love fill your heart for our gay brothers and sisters who have been so misunderstood for so long? May God grant us the inspiration, courage, and grace we need as a church and people to find the right path on this issue, a path that will be in accordance with his will and that will save the lives and souls of our beloved gay members of the church. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.